now it's time for another Physics with Phil. Hey, Hi, Phil. Hi, everybody. Hey, hey what's Jay. up, buddy? Hey, Chris. What's going on today? So uh, today I thought uh, it would be fun to talk about information theory in biology, um, just because it's something that I've been thinking about lately. As and one does. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is something that happens every now and then. Think about information theory. <laughs> um, so, so... I should start by explaining what I mean by information theory. Um, you know, what is that? And, you know, if you wanted to point to a time, uh, you know, sort of the beginning of information theory as a, as a discipline in and of itself, um, it really all started at Bell Labs um, back in the late 40s. The Bell Telephone Company had a government monopoly for a long time, and they, you know, they used that to run this lab where, you know, they didn't have to worry as much, you know, they, you know, they weren't worried about just making products. Uh, they did a lot of groundbreaking research. Um, um, and, and back in the late 40s, they had this guy, Claude Shannon, who wanted to develop... Um, a mathematical theory that could be used to sort of analyze uh, coding and communication um, in the literal sense, you know, like telegraphs, telephone conversations. Um, and he wrote a paper in the, that came out in the Bell System Technical Journal called A Mathematical Theory of Communication, um, which was later expanded into a book. But it started off with this paper in 1948. And, and the questions that Shannon was interested in were basically um, – you know, imagine, uh, imagine that you want to transmit um, some message. Could be anything. Could be you know, letters. Could be dots and dashes. Whatever. Um, and you have some communication channel with certain properties. And you have you know that it has some capacity. It you know it, it might have some tendency to, to for you know there to be noise where you could mistake one symbol for another, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he wanted to develop a theory that would describe that so that you could then use that theory to ask questions about what, what is the best way to transmit messages? You know, what is, the, what is the optimal way to encode information? Um, and in order to do that, he had to develop a th sort of a quantitative theory of, of what information is, a way of quantifying information. Um, and the easiest way to understand this is to sort of think of, think of a simple example. So here's, a, here's an example. Let's say you wanted to encode uh, a position that that you, you you wanted to send a position as your as your message okay like say you're doing an experiment um, where you have a rat in a tube and every now and then you want to send a message that uh, just says where is the rat in the tube okay um, and and just for the simplicity's sake let's say you know it's it's a one-dimensional tube and it's eight meters long and you care about where the rat is to within one meter okay so there are eight different possible messages corresponding to positions in the tube. Now, w one way you could imagine um, encoding that is just to have like eight lights, right? And, you know, the first light is on if the rat is in the first meter, second light is on if the rat is in the second meter, and so on, right? That would work. But it turns out that that's not the most efficient way to encode position in the tube. It turns out you can do better. Uh, you can actually encode position in the tube with only three lights. And the way you do it is you first divide the tube in half, okay? And if the first light is on, then that means that the rat is in the first four meters. And if it's off, then the rat is in the second four meters, okay? And then the second light 
regardless of whether the rat is in the first four meters or the second four meters, if the rat is in the first two meters of that interval, the second light is on. And if it's in the second two meters of the interval, that light is off. And then the third light, regardless of which of these two meter segments the rat is in, will be on if the rat is in the first meter and off is in, if the rat is in the second meter. Okay. So the, the fact of, uh, you know, the, the lights specify position in this hierarchical way where the first light specifies the sort of the gross position and the second light refines it and the third light refines it even further. So this is equivalent to representing eight in terms of binary digits, where the first digit specifies whether or not you're in two different four meter regions and the second digit two two meter regions and the third digit into one meter regions. Okay. So you can specify the position of the rat in this tube with only three lights. And the idea here is that the first way that I mentioned of representing it where you have eight lights is very inefficient because most of the time, most of the lights will be off and are not conveying any information. Okay. So, you know, at any given position, only one light is on and only one light is actually really giving you much information. Whereas in the second way of representing position, every light is giving you information all the time. And that is sort of the fundamental idea of Shannon's theory of communication. Okay, so you want to know what is the set of possible messages that I want to send, what, what are the lists of symbols that I have, and you want to develop a code such that every symbol is being used as often as possible, and every symbol should be used equally often. Um, so this leads to another wrinkle in the idea of efficient communication, which in the terms of this example, you could think of as, say, a situation where the rat's feeding tube is in one side of the one side of the of this one dimensional area and so the rat in practice spends almost all of its time in the first one meter region in that case you could imagine that you would you would actually want to have just one light that says the rat is over here and then have some more lights to deal with the rest of the tube but since you're not, you don't have to use those lights very often most of the time you can get away with only one light you know the frequency with which you're going to specify use transmit various messages or use various symbols also affects the nature of your optimally efficient code. And that's the basic idea. And, you know, there's sort of some mathematics that goes into, you know, given, given some information about what you want to say and how often you would say it, you use to actually calculate what the optimal code is, but that's the basic idea. Um, and, and the only other really important part, um, sort of qualitative idea in the theory is, is how to actually quantify information. And it turns out that the way to quantify information is to use a, a logarithmic scale. Okay. So in the case of this tube, we need three lights that are going to be on or off. Um, that corresponds to three bits of information and a bit of information is basically, a, a symbol that could be one or zero or on or off. Okay. And the number that would correspond to that would be log base two of two, which is one, two to the one. Right. And then if you had two lights, then you have two bits of information, which corresponds to four different possible messages, right? You could have one, 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 zero, zero, one, or zero, zero. So there's four messages, which is two squared. So the log base two of that is two. And if you have three lights, you have eight possible messages, which would correspond to the eight meters of our, of our fake example, which is two cubed, three bits of information.
Okay, so it turns out that the right way to quantify information is on this logarithmic scale in the number of possible messages or the number of possible states of your communication device. So when you have n different messages, the amount of information, you know, in, 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 roughly speaking, will be log base 2 of n in bits. And you can use whatever base for the logarithm that you want. You can use base e or whatever. doesn't really matter. We usually use bits. So computer memory is measured in bits because the fundamental objects of computer memory are zeros and ones on these, you know, flip-flops. And a byte is three bits. And, you know, if you have 200 gigabytes of memory on your computer, that means you have 600 bits you know, in your computer memory, and you can have two to the, sorry, 600 billion bits, and you could have two to the 600 billion different possible states in your memory, which is a ridiculous number and, you know, doesn't actually get used most of the time. But this is the idea. Okay, so Shannon developed this thing, uh, you know, literally for the purpose of trying to understand coding and communication. And, and you know, I mean, you can imagine why this research was being done by a telephone company, right? You know, mm -hmm. They are obviously going to be very interested in, in ways of efficiently encoding messages and transmitting information. But, uh, you know, as is, you know, becoming a theme in these segments, this idea developed for one thing turns out to be useful for a million other things. Okay. Um, so if you have done any thermodynamics or statistical mechanics, this already might sound familiar because the entropy of a system that has N possible states is also log of n and it turns out that information and entropy are really the same thing um, and you can think of entropy as like a quantifying our ignorance about some physical system okay and that connection has been used to do all kinds of interesting interesting physics um, you know so there's a whole theory of of like the thermodynamics of computation um, that allows you to set sort of fundamental thermodynamic limits on how efficient computations, how efficiently computations can be done, how efficiently memory can be stored. Um, there's a, a famous uh, uh, debate, uh, you know, over the last decade or so in the astrophysics community about whether or not information gets destroyed permanently if you throw a book into a black hole, stuff like that. There's all <laughs> kinds of neat, what are they neat stuff. That's so, so uh, there's actually, there's a famous bet between Stephen Hawking and Kip Thorne, um, who's a physicist at Caltech, and another guy whose name is escaping me at the moment. Um, Hawking thought the information was permanently gone. The other guys thought that eventually, the as the black hole evaporates, the information comes back out, or the entropy comes back out. And uh, I think now most people think that that Kip Thorne was right, that information is not permanently lost. If I try to talk about this too much, people are going to find out that I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> that's how the bet came out. Anyway, there's a million neat things that you can do with this idea of quantifying information. Um, and it's been important in statistical mechanics, you know, literally from the day Shannon developed the theory. Um, but it turns out it's also really useful in biology. And the most obvious way that you could think that it would be useful is to actually think about biological systems whose purpose is, you know, communicating information or encoding information. So it's, it was obvious from the very beginning that this was going to be a useful concept for neuroscientists. And, and almost right away after Shannon's paper came out, you know, people were using this theory to say, compute the maximum information transmission rate of a neuron. Um, and stuff like that. And so it's been used in neuroscience for a long time. Um, but that's actually not 
um, what I want to talk about, at least not at the beginning today, because what I think is really interesting is in the past sort of 10 or 20 years, people have figured out that information theory is useful in every area of biology. At this point, there's like no area of biology where somebody hasn't figured out a way of applying this idea of information theory. And it, and it really seems like actually just any biological system can be thought of as a system for processing or encoding or transmitting information. And that this is a really powerful idea for understanding all sorts of different areas of biology. Um, so I have two, two examples. Um, and the first one is not neuroscience and the second one is, so I'll get back to neuroscience in a minute. But the first example, um, um, is some sort of work done over the past sort of five years or so by, um, uh, Bill Bialik and co-workers, various co-workers at Princeton. And uh, Bialik is a guy who has been heavily involved in the use of information theory in neuroscience. So he's done a ton of work on, on the information transmission capacity of neurons and what are the you know, kinds of physical limits that we can set on the ability of neurons to encode information and how do they you know, deal with these sorts of constraints and so on and so forth. Um, but Lately, he's also been sort of one of the pioneers in applying these ideas to problems that aren't neuroscience. And I think one of the coolest examples is um, an application of the idea of information to uh, development in the fruit fly. So we've talked about development before, um, and now I can, I can get into a little more detail about development, in this case, in the fruit fly, though this you know, could also apply to lots of other organisms. Okay, so what happens when, uh, when a fruit fly uh, is born? Um, so the female fly lays an egg and at the beginning the egg is like one big cell um, one nucleus one membrane and this huge cytoplasm and the first thing that happens over the course of of just a few hours after the egg is fertilized um, is uh, there is a series of synchronized cell divisions that turn this thing from one big cell into into many hundreds of cells and they all happen simultaneously. Um, it, it's a really cool video. You should go on YouTube and watch it. It's beautiful. Um, but anyway, the first thing that happens is this one cell turns into thousands of, of little cells. But the, the embryo sort of maintains this egg-shaped structure. Okay, And in the beginning, there's nothing differentiating the cells from each other. So the next thing that happens after the last series of divisions has occurred is that the cells start to develop in different directions. Okay. So, um, the, uh, Drosophila is a, it's an insect that has these various body segments. And so the, the, the cells start to turn into what's eventually going to become head and wings and thorax and so on and so forth. I'm oversimplifying a little bit because of course it starts off as a larvae and doesn't become a fly until a whole other process of stuff happens. But in any case, um, and so the question is, how does a cell in the middle of the embryo that's supposed to eventually become a wing know that it's in the middle of the embryo as opposed to on one end or the other. And the answer is it turns out that the embryo wasn't really uniform in the first place. Okay. So the egg, when it's laid by the mother already has, um, one end picked out. And the way it's picked out is that there's a bunch of MRNAs of this signaling molecule, which in the fly is called bicoid. Um, but there are similar molecules with different names in all sorts of other organisms. And all these mRNAs are on one side of the embryo and they get turned into protein 
And what happens when you have this embryo with all these cells that have divided is that the bicoid gets transported from one end to the other in such a way that you have a gradient. So there's lots of bicoid on one end of the embryo and not so much on the other end. Okay, so you have this gradient of bicoid. So in principle, if you know the concentration of bicoid, you know where you are in the embryo. But, you know, there's a finite number of these molecules. So when you make the measurement, there's some noise, okay? Um, and so really you're estimating where you are in the embryo. And that leads to a question of what is the optimal shape of the bicoid distribution for maximizing the amount of information that you can gain about where you are in the embryo? And, you know, there are sort of various uh, constraints that could lead into optimizing this, right? So, you know, you want there to be, it's better to have high concentrations because then your signal to noise ratio is better. And it's better to have, it's also better to have a steeper decay of the bicoid concentration because if the decay is too shallow, then mistakes of a certain size in your concentration measurement will lead to bigger errors in your estimation of what your position is. Um, but you can sort of put all these constraints together and do an optimization that is formally exactly the same um, as what you know Shannon would have done for figuring out a code on a telegram line, for example, telegraph line that is. And you get a prediction about what the distribution of concentrations of bicoid should look like in a fly embryo. And aside from an overall scale factor that doesn't enter into the problem, your prediction is parameter free. Okay. You don't need any data to do the calculation and you don't have to fit anything, but you can then compare it to, you know, measurements of bicoid concentrations in fly embryos. And if you do this, you get this shocking agreement between the real distribution of bicoid in an embryo and this theoretical prediction of what the optimum should look like if if your if your purpose is to maximize transmission of information um, and it turns out that the amount of info you can calculate the amount of information and it's about 1.7 bits okay which is surprising because i think you know, a lot of people would have said that the answer is one bit, right? That the fly tells the difference between high bicoid and low bicoid, and that's it. But it turns out there's more information than that, and that the fly is actually able to use this one gradient to, to form multiple segments in its body plan. And the prediction of, of optimal information transmission is satisfied incredibly well, without any fitting again. Um, so it's impressive that this system really does seem to be optimized with respect to this idea that it's that its purpose is to transmit information. Um, and you can ask similar questions about other aspects of development. So this calculation uses the measured, it uses a measured relation between bicoid concentration and the output of sort of the next molecule downstream in the pathway. But you can also ask, what is the optimal input-output relation between bicoid and other genes that bicoid affects? And you can, you know, do a calculation there and get a prediction. And you can do that sort of thing for all kinds of signaling systems. So it's been done, you know, for the chemotaxis system and E. coli, um, you know, other types of regulatory signaling systems and so on and so forth. So it's a super useful approach now that people are using to understand the structure of all kinds of biochemical pathways. Okay, so that's, that's the first example that I think is cool. Um, the second one is, uh, I'm going back to neuroscience. Um, 
And uh, the, the example that I gave of the rat in the tube uh, actually comes from a, a seminar that I saw uh, a couple weeks ago um, by this guy, uh, Vijay Balasubramanian, who's a physics professor at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He does string theory part of the time and neuroscience part of the time, which you don't see too often. Um, anyway, he's also very interested in these ideas of optimizing information transmission. And one of the things that he's worked on is uh, the way animals uh, sense their location. So it turns out that you know this information system with lights describing the position of the of a rat is something that really actually exists in mammalian brains. So mammals have these things called grid cells um, that exist in, in layers of cortex, and a two D layer of grid cells is actually a fairly can in, at least in in simple cases be directly mapped onto two dimensional actual sp physical space. Um, you know, so if you put a rat in a little 2d arena and let it walk around for a while, um, and you record off of these grid cells, you can see that, you know, when the rat is in certain, a certain area, certain grid cells light up and, and then the mapping is pretty direct. So, you know, as it moves to the right, you know, a continue, there's a continuous shift in the grid cells that light up and, and there's actually a fairly simple correspondence between these cells and places on the, on this 2d map. Um, but you know, a similar issue to what I was describing with communicating the position of the rat also arises for the grid cells. It's just that it's in two dimensions instead of one dimension. So you could have, you know, if you have an eight by eight arena and you want to specify your position to within one meter squared, you could have 64 grid cells and have one light up at every different position. But it turns out that that's not how grid cells work. Grid cells work like the binary code that I described. So there are multiple layers and each layer specifies a grid of higher, finer and finer resolution. And, you know, the grid cells on the top layer will only light up corresponding to sort of very large areas. And then the grid cells in the next layer down will light up, you know, depending on subregions of these areas. And, you know, so the grid, grid cells on the top layer will only light up in one area and the grid cells on the bottom layer will light up in different, multiple different areas, but always in the same subregions of the larger areas. It's completely analogous to this binary encoding of position. So that's pretty cool. And this is something that was figured out by people doing experiments, by different groups doing experiments um, relatively recently. Um, but where, where the, the theorists come in... Um, is in asking a, a slightly more detailed question about how this works. So you could ask, let's say you want to, you need to achieve a certain resolution in your sensing of position and you want to minimize the number of cells that you need to do it. What is the optimal uh, ratio between scales of successive layers in your system? So in, in the system that I described, the ratio is two, right? The first light has four meters of resolution. The second light, two meters. The third light, one meter. Okay. Um, so in general, what it, you can ask, what is that ratio in the case of this 2D layer of cells? And, and the idea is, right, if, if your first layer has a certain spatial resolution, if your second layer has a spatial resolution that's only a little bit smaller, 
that's not very efficient, right? You're not mm -hmm. gaining a lot of extra information. Mm -hmm. But if the, if the spatial resolution of the second layer is too small, then you need too many cells, right? Eventually, mm -hmm. you're just getting back to, the, to, the, to the just having one cell for every single position, okay? So there's two competing, competing constraints. And again, you can do a, an optimization that's formally essentially identical to what's done in the case of the fly and the case of the telegraph line. And you can get an answer for what is the optimal uh, ratio of scales across layers of grid cells. And it turns out that the answer, this is so cool, is Euler E, Euler's constant, raised to the power of 1 over D, where D is the spatial dimension. So in two dimensions, the answer is the square root of E. Okay? And you can go in the experimental data for this paper where they recorded off of the grid cells of rats who were going around this 2D arena foraging. And you can measure the spatial scale of the grid cells in the different layers, and it fits the prediction exactly exactly correctly. Which again never happens. That never you never get some pat cool answer like that with no fitting and have it be right. So it really tells you that you know people are onto something with this idea that you know all of biology is really about information transmission. Um, because it seems to work so well in understanding like the actual detailed quantitative structure of of biological signaling systems in totally different you know roles, totally different parts of of the animal, different organisms, um, and it's something that you know n now in recent years you know people have gotten heavily into doing, and so there's a million other examples. Um, these are sort of the two best ones, you know. Um, but it's been it's been used to do all kinds of different stuff, um, and it's a really cool area. So yeah, it's kind of spooky. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is actually. Um, it's it's very wild and, and mind blowing to think that there's some sort of blueprint that fits all biological processes, and and that th that blueprint can be applied to, you know, well, communications. Yeah, yeah that, uh, that blueprint you know, is about you know technology mechanics, and it's and yeah, it, it's. You know, from a from a science fiction writer standpoint, this is like a dream come true. It's like, oh, I'm gonna. Use I wonder this what we can write. write. <laughs> Dude, it's a awesome. science fiction information theory based. It's really hot. I've got yeah, this, totally. I Comic. <laughs> I mean, um, you can also imagine, like, I mean, you know how uh, how this could have evolved, though. I mean, you know, in the case of the fly. Um, one of the other things these guys measured was, you know, they met, you know, is this thing really just explained by the bicoid diffusing around? And, and the answer is no, because the amount of time that the fly has to form these segments is not enough time for bicoid to, to diffuse completely from one end of the embryo to the other. Um, you know, so the, so the fly is either picking, but it's not just plain old diffusion. There's gotta be some regulatory exactly, processes yeah, yeah. that keep bicoid from moving. It seems likely that there's some transport of yeah. bicoid going on, yeah. you know? So this is something that, you know, the shape of this distribution is something that you can imagine that the fly, you know, over the course of evolutionary time that animals were able to change the way that they acted on it, you know, in order to make better, you know, positional and, you know, in order for their cells and the embryos to get better positional information, right? And, and, you know, animals have gone from things like, you know, sea cucumbers and hydras that have no body segments, you know, that are just like a mush of pretty homogenous tissue, you know. Like a uh, jellyfish. Yeah, like a jellyfish. Um, 
to something like a fly that has segments and but you know, the, has a complicated body Do you plan. need to have a segments and do you need to have uh, multiple, you know, do you need to be uh, an organism or a living thing that has many cells for you to apply um, this theory? Or can, can you apply it to like a single bacterial cell or a yeast you cell? You can apply it to a single bacterial cell. Um, you know, the, I mean... Not in exactly the same context, not in the context of spatial organization. No, obviously, yeah. Um, though bacteria do have some spatial organization. But, uh, you know, so I mentioned E. coli chemotaxis. Right. This is a really well-developed example where um, people have worked on the, on the idea that the E. coli is trying to gather the maximal amount of information about its an environment. So the way E. coli chemotaxis works is... And just so everybody knows, chemotaxis is moving t toward or right. away from Yeah, either specific... toward food or away from noxious chemicals, either yeah. way. So, so E. coli have this bundle of flagella, which are like little tails, essentially. Um, and they have a handedness to them so that when the bundle is rotating... Um, counterclockwise, the, the flagella all sort of naturally bind together and form this corkscrew shaped thing that, that allows, you know, that turns and, and pushes the E. coli around a little motor. Exactly. It's like a little motor and, and it, it's like a little propeller. Basically it always mm -hmm. turns counterclockwise, counterclockwise and, um, and, and pushes but it, but all it can do is push the E. coli in a straight line, which is not very useful. So the other thing it can do is if it turns clockwise, the handedness of these little flagella causes them to splay apart instead of bundling together. So instead of forming this coherent bundle that pushes the E. coli ahead, they just sort of sh fly apart and it's called a tumble. The E. coli end up and just turns in a random direction. So the E. coli can do two things. It can go, it can go in a straight line and it can turn in a random direction. Okay, and, and it turns out that's enough. Um, and what you do is uh, so the E. coli is too small to sense spatial gradients. Um, e. coli is like a micron long and the constant, e you know, for realistic diffusion gradients of, of food molecules, the difference in concentration between the front and the back of the E. coli is negligible. Okay. So it can't do that kind of comparison, but it can do temporal comparisons. So it can say, okay, what is the concentration of food? And now what is the concentration of food one second later? And what the E. coli does is if the concentration of food is going up in time, it reduces its frequency of tumbling. Um, and if it's going down in time, it increases the frequency of tumbling. So it just decides how often it's going to turn in random directions. Um, these experiments were done by uh, this guy, Howard Berg at Harvard, um, you know, like in the, in the seventies, sixties and seventies, I think. Um, and, and they're done by tethering and you basically glue the flagella of an E. coli onto a, onto a microscope slide, and then you can pipette chemicals over it. You can control the temporal profile of chemicals that, that they, that they see, and you can get a very detailed quantitative measurement of really exactly how the E. coli responds to, to changing rates of chemicals. Um, and so it was, uh, this is like one of the original systems that quantitative people collaborated with biologists to understand and it was really successful um you know the, the biochemical network and how it works and why it works has been worked out in a ton of detail um but one of the contributions to that was this idea that the e coli wants to maximize the amount of information that it gets out of its environment and you know you can do a similar type of computation where you ask you know exactly how much should the e coli increase or decrease its tumbling rate in response to changes in concentration 
So bacteria do this as well. You know, you don't need a brain or a complicated body plan. It's something that can happen even in very simple biochemical systems. Um, it's crazy. It, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's useful as a tool also, right? So, you know, it, it can tell you something about what happened in the evolution of biochemical pathways. Why do they look like what they look like? Um, but it's also useful for things like sequence alignments, you know, um, the idea of information is really important in these types of genomics approaches where mm -hmm. people are looking at homology between different gene sequences and stuff like that. Um, you know, people have used it to try to get to, to try to f help fold proteins on computers, you know, by looking at the, the, um, you know, mutual information between different proteins in families, you know, in order to predict structures, things like that. It's, it's really being used in every area of biology. I have a very simple question. How much do you know? I feel like every time I ask a question, <laughs> you just know the answer so, I mean, in incredible this, detail. This stuff, you know, I mean, chemotaxis is like every quantitative biology student learns that learns about yeah. that because it's like, it's the classic example of... But I thought you were a physicist. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I've been doing biology know, for a pretty long time. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, this chemotaxis stuff I learned when I was an undergrad. Um, and, and, you know, the, yeah, this uh, information theory stuff is a really important thing in the field. It's actually not part of the... Well, it, it, it's, it's not a huge part of the standard physics curriculum. Um, but it is something that everybody learns, you know in the process of going from physics to biology. Sure. And actually, you know, this is, this is cool. Uh, this is an interesting point. Um, um, Bill Bialik, along with a bunch of other people at the Genomics Institute in Princeton have been working on, you know, I mean, they think that people should be learning this stuff when they're freshmen and sophomores. And so they actually have this course, it's called the integrated science curriculum where they, I've heard of know, that. Yeah. They teach, they, they take a sort of more inter interdisciplinary approach Sounds to teaching amazing. quantitative science. And they do this stuff yeah. like in the, you know, in the beginning, um, because yeah, it's, you know, it, re it really is the best example of like quantitative biology that works and that yeah. generates good predictions and stuff like that. Um, you know, because these models, you don't have to, you know, in most cases, you don't have to know anything about the biochemistry or the proteins to, to make the model, which, you know, is not to say that you don't want to know things about the biochemistry and the proteins, because obviously you do, but you know, the taking, taking biochemical knowledge and just directly translating it into models that have a zillion proteins in them is, uh, an approach that's fraught with peril. You know, you can make these really complicated models and you can predict whatever you want, you know, if mm -hmm. you adjust the parameters enough and this information theory approach gives people a way of making models that are really simple and that don't require any fitting, but that still give understanding um, useful understanding. So that, that's part of the reason why it's been so successful. I think, I think simplicity is always the best. Yes. The best Simple route. is good. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks Phil. I love physics thanks, with Phil. Phil. I feel like I am really smart after hearing <laughs> always. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. The goal. <laughs> thanks Chris. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> See you next time. Yeah. See you guys next time.